You are listening to the In Focus Church podcast. We believe God is going to meet you right where you are today as you listen and dig into His Word. You know, we believe some outrageous claims and statements as human beings. Uh, we, we believe stuff that is completely outlandish, and why we believe outlandish things are true, or why we perpetuate things as true that are verifiably false and have no factual basis, or, or why we don't believe things that are factually right in front of our face at the same time, or why we argue and one person says they have the facts and another person says they have facts and it's about the same exact thing, and, and why we believe things that nobody in their right mind should believe are all valid questions to which I don't have an answer. And if I did, it would probably not be the right answer for somebody. But here's the reality. Uh, Somebody falsely accredited this to P.T. Barnum, but uh, someone said there's a sucker born every second. And as human beings, we continue to perpetuate and prove that to be true. For example, you'll find a lot of things that we have believed in the past that I could talk about that we no longer believe, but we think, man, that was ridiculous that anybody ever believed that. But there'll be 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years down the road, and people will think of that same thing about us, the things that we believe that are verifiably false. How about like the earth is flat? Now, that has been believed for many years in the past, but even has gained some new traction even today, although it is verifiably false. How about this? You'll get cramps if you go swimming after you eat. Not really true, uh, unless, I don't know, you, maybe you go to the Golden Corral and eat for days. Uh, you will, uh, it'll take seven years for that gum that you swallowed to digest. Not true. It will never digest. It just comes out another way. <laughs> Touching a toad will give you warts. Not true, Mom. Not true. Eating carrots will improve your eyesight. Now, somebody's like, oh, that is true. I'm like, well, not to the point to where if you are like me, you don't have to wear glasses anymore. How about this? You swallow an average of eight spiders a year while you're sleeping. It's not true. So, <gasps> maybe one. Maybe one a year. I don't know. It, it's, it's not true. It's depending on where you live and, and, and what type of environment you might be in. I guess it could be. But the reality is, is that we have said things like this, we perpetuated them to be true, we've passed them down, and although they may not be true at all, we continue to act like they are. And if this is the case, what it does prove is that there is a gullibility that we all have, that, or a naivety, or an ignorance that seeps into things that actually do matter, like what we believe about the Bible and what we believe about what God says. Or we, we might say things like, if you dream it, you can do it. No, you can't. I'm sorry to bust your bubble or what your fifth grade teacher might have told you. If I name it and claim it, I can get it. If I claim that Bugatti for God, he will give it to me. And listen, that is not, I, I have, there are people that, that not only believe that, but still teach that and, and preach that. And the fact that people actually believe those things and that some of these people, I can watch them and they have thousands or millions of followers is more a, a constant reminder of why what we believe as Christians really matter. 
We are not immune to harmful lies. We're not immune to falsities or, or terrible doctrine or bad theology or heresy even. And if we can believe pretty much anything like Stonehenge was built by aliens or Tupac and Elvis are alive together somewhere or, uh, or Prince Charles is really a vampire. And these are all things that somebody believes if we believe those things, then we're also capable of forming some terrible beliefs about God, Jesus, the Holy Spirit, ourselves, other people, the church, eternity, and history has proven again and again that that is in fact true, that we will believe just about anything. So today we begin a new series entitled simply The Apostles' Creed. Not to be mistaken with Apollo Creed, although doing a series on Rocky movies might actually be a good idea. We could do that maybe in our At the Movies series. Maybe some of you are familiar with the Apostles' Creed. Maybe some of you have recited it growing up or you went to a church where you said it every single Sunday and it's not a bad idea. Uh, maybe you memorized it. Maybe there's some of you that have never heard of the Apostles' Creed or Apollo Creed, but I'm not teaching about him. I'm teaching about the Apostles' Creed, but here's why it's important. The Apostles' Creed contains essential Christian doctrines and beliefs that summarize the gospel and make up the foundation of our faith. I'll say that again. The Apostles' Creed contains essential Christian doctrines and beliefs that summarize the gospel and make up the foundation of of our faith. It is a summary of what the Bible teaches, a narrative of God's redemptive love and story for us. And it's a concise statement, if you will, of basic Christianity. And this is why we can and will spend multiple weeks looking at the Apostles' Creed. Let's start by giving a little more context in order to commend its importance to us this morning. Why is it important that we know this creed? Why is it important that we would study this and, and affirm what we believe? Well, the Apostles' Creed contains scriptural truths that help us live out good theology, knowing that our faith is rooted in truth, and, and this is important, knowing that our faith is connected to a powerful history of saints that have gone before and that have affirmed this and have lived for this and have died for this. It's important. And when we recite this creed, we declare the same truths that gave early Christians hope the same truths that provided strength for those that were tortured, for those that were martyred for what they believed, and the same truths that have instructed the church for centuries. That's powerful. The lines of the creed are not just mere words on a page. They, they convey the essence of what we confess and what we say we believe as the body of Christ. We obviously believe more than what is contained in the Apostles' Creed, but we cannot believe any less. Subscribing to and then systematically teaching the Apostles' Creed is, is rooted in history. It's rooted in Christian history. And biblical precedent is given to teach and to pass these things on that the Apostles passed on. It's a timeless spiritual benefit for Christians of all ages. And I'm not talking about our age, I'm talking about the ages. The creed has been and continues to be helpful encouragement for worship and discipleship in providing Christians with the summaries of essential doctrines of the faith. It's been the centerpiece of evangelism in the regards to Christian apologetics, in fighting for what we're going to talk about, contending for what we believe. It's truth reminds Christians, in essence, of their faith, 
to contend for the faith what was once for all entrusted to God's holy people. That's what Jude says. Now there's only one book in Jude, so this is verse 3 of Jude, and it says this, Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt compelled to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people. Think about that now, that he's saying, I felt compelled to write to you and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people by the apostles. This is important because how do you contend, which really means to to fight for, to struggle, and to resist. How do you contend for something that you don't know or understand? Why would you do that? How or why would you stand up for what you believe in if you don't know what you really believe in? Christianity includes an authoritative body of belief given by God to the church through the apostles, hence why we're affirming what we believe through the Apostles' Creed. Originally, the Apostles' Creed was written primarily to defend against heresy and the heresy of Gnosticism. Now, if you took one of Pastor Will's classes a few summers ago, you would have learned about what Gnosticism is and what it was. The Christians were contending against Gnosticism, which what did they do? A few things. They denied doctrines like divine creation, the incarnation of Christ, the deity of Christ, salvation by faith in Christ alone, and all of those doctrines are now expressly affirmed in the creed. Why? Because they were affirming what we believe versus what they're saying is true, which was actually false. But even today, the Apostles' Creed can still operate as a summary of what the Bible teaches for recognizing true Christianity, rejecting false doctrines that are just as rampant and messed up and damaging to the witness of Christ in the church today. This is why we have to affirm what we believe. What does the Bible say and what is true and what has been held on to for centuries by Christians John 8, 32 says, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. It's the truth that sets us free. Creeds correct error. If there is truth, then know this. If there's truth, then the opposite means that there's going to be error. Right? If there's light, there's darkness. If there's truth, there's error. If there's an original, there's a counterfeit. And Satan is the father of counterfeits and error, lies, if you will. And the eternal consequences of believing his lies is horrific. So the Apostles' Creed summarizes faith, as we've already stated. It does not replace Scripture. It points to Scripture and what we believe. It actually summarizes accurately the Bible's content in into digestible statements in order to equip Christians with summaries of the faith, in order to do what Ephesians 4 says, to equip the body to do the work of ministry, we have to know what we believe. So we affirm again and again, this is who we are because this is what we believe. And that's what the Apostles' Creed does. My prayer is that God would make us in Focus Church to be what Hebrews 10, 23 says, that this would be true of us. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope or our faith without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. That we would hold fast, that we would trust, that we would believe to the faith and the hope that we've been given. So now we get back to the Apostles' Creed. 
What you believe about God and your relationship to him is the most important thing that you will ever believe. A.W. Tozer says it this way, what you think about God, what comes to your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about us. Each stanza of the Apostles' Creed begins with that Latin word credo, which means I believe. The absolute centrality of belief to the Christian faith is supported. But it's not just any belief. It's not just belief in something out there. This belief that we're talking about in the Apostles' Creed has an object. And the object of our belief is Jesus Christ. This is what and who our belief is in. In Acts 16, verse 30 through 31, you don't have to turn there, but Paul is being asked the most important question any of us will ever ask when the Philippian jailer said or asked, then he brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? This will be the important, most important question that you could ever ask in your life. And the answer and what we affirm through the creeds and what we read in the scripture, the answer is the same. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. The Apostles' Creed affirms what Paul says to the Philippian jailer. There is an integral connection, an inseparable connection between faith and the Christian life, between belief in Jesus and the Christian life. So let's unpack the creed. This morning's message is, I believe. So we're going to unpack the first three words of this particular creed. I believe in. I believe in. Now why don't you go ahead and think about it while I take a sip of water. What you believe in. Because we all believe in numerous and sundry things. We believe in all kinds of things. You believe that when you sat down that that chair was going to support you and hold you up. You believe when you cut on the switch in your house, the fan or the light or whatever you're turning on is going to come on and there's power in your house. You believe it. Even though you can't see it, you believe it. There's all kinds of things that we live our life believing. And what we believe causes us to do things that respond. What we believe affects how we live. You can say it this way if you're taking notes, believing leads to action. True believing leads to action. So what we do and how we live, my friends, says more about what we believe than what we say out of our mouths. Can I get a big amen? <laughs> yeah, because we've all been there. So what do your actions say about what you truly believe? Let's keep it churchy. You say you believe in honoring God with your money and being generous. Yeah, yeah, Kevin. Yeah, man, that's good. Yeah, Pastor Robert. Yeah, that's so good. Y'all teach so. I believe it. You say you believe in honoring God with your money and being generous, but what we believe about giving generously to God is evidenced by our actions. You say you believe in purity and holiness, but what we believe about purity and holiness is evidence in our actions and how we live and how we have our marriages and our relationships. You say you believe in loving everyone as made in the image of God, but your actions actually prove whether or not you truly love your neighbor as yourself. You say you believe in the importance of the body of Christ, the church. But what we believe is evidenced in our actions. 
You say you believe gossip, backbiting, slander, and such are dishonoring to God and dissenting within the body of Christ. But what you believe is evidenced by your actions, particularly when I'm on Facebook. Oh, dear Lord. Y'all see, if you're in the first service, you're like, like me already. I'm like, I'm about to. You believe that that's not going to happen again. <laughs> Believing leads to actions. And actions demonstrate belief. This reminds me of James 2, 18 through 20. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Now, you know, sometimes when I read the book of James and even when I read Paul and then people tell me stuff like, man, you're a little bit hard or you're a little bit difficult. I'm like, bro. He just said, do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? I, don't, I mean, there's no nice way to read that. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person? <laughs> he didn't say it like that. James is pointing out that just believing in a creed does not mean saving faith. Just saying you believe something does not mean that you put your trust in God. The demons have mental assent, he's saying. They have cognitive acknowledgement of the fact that God is a triune God, and it causes them to shudder. They actually have a response to it. But saving faith, then, is not mere intellectual acceptance of a theological proposition. It goes way deeper. It involves your heart, your soul, your mind, your body, your strength. That's what the great commandment tells us to do, to love your Lord God all with all that you have and it's expressed that love that you have with an outwardly visible evident changed life this is the kind of belief we're talking about not just i believe theological facts not just i believe this because somebody else did and told me it was a good idea but i believe with true belief and this true belief has verifiable actions that's what this kind of belief is not just that i say one thing on Sunday and then do another. That's called hypocrisy. So regrettably, it seems that we have all been hypocrites about anything and everything that I just mentioned. Regrettably, it seems, excuse me, that we have all been practical atheists. Well, I'm not an atheist. I believe in God. Nope. Belief in God means that my actions demonstrate that I believe in God. So I'm practically an atheist. See, and listen, don't be condemned by that. Be convicted by that. Because the truth is we've all been there. But again, this is why it's important to affirm what we do believe. It's actually a matter of eternal life or death. And it's also a matter of abundant life or not having an abundant life now. See, the most well-known verse in all of the Bible tells us what is eternally at stake when there's a conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus, and he's trying to explain to him what it means to have eternal life. We know John 3.16. Everybody's really familiar with that one, but I want to read the rest of that, the next few verses. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. This is not just some words on a page. This is a conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus while he's trying to explain to him what this means. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. 
Whoever, here's this word, believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed." But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works, what he is demonstrating, what she is doing, have been carried out in God. In these verses, we see the connection between belief and actions, what we demonstrate with our lives, but also the difference between head knowledge and faith. What I say I know and what I truly believe. The Greek word translated as believes in John 3.16 doesn't really uh, express in English what it really means. It goes beyond a mere comprehension of facts. It is the word pistiuo, and it actually means to believe in too, which means you rely on, commit to, give God your trust. So if I were to say in a room like this, or maybe wherever, I could go out and just say this at a restaurant. I'll go up to Cracker Barrel afterwards and just say, hey, can I get your attention? Could you put down the licorice for a second and let me ask you a question? I don't know if you, if you buy licorice there. I hate licorice, but you could buy it there. All right, so I want to ask you a question. How many of you believe in God? I mean, everybody would raise their hand, most everybody. But then I'd say, no, no, no. What I mean when I say, does everybody believe in God? I mean, do how many of you rely on, trust in, put your hope in, and have committed your life to God? No, I'm going to get back to my liquor show here. No, that's the difference in what we oftentimes think of transactionally as Believe. I believe in God. It's a transaction. No, it's a relationship. It's not a transactional thing. It's a relational thing that we have with God that we truly believe. And as we trust and commit, we're proving through external expressions and behaviors that this is a belief that I have. It's not just a head knowledge. It's a heart devotion. Belief that John 3.16 is talking about, that the Bible is talking about. Belief is not just head knowledge. It is heart devotion. I believe there are a lot of people who know about God but do not believe into God. Do not rely on him. Do not commit to God. Do not trust God with everything. And we've, we talk about every Sunday with our lives, with our relationships, with our money, with our future. That's the type of trust that I'm talking about. And you know what terrifies me is I think about that and I think about all kinds of scriptures and I have over the last 12 months more than I ever had before about a narrow path that leads to Christ and a broad path that leads to destruction. And I think about the verse that's the most terrifying verse in the Bible that there will be some that stand before God to say, God, I, 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 I cast out demons in your name. I prophesied in your name. I did. I went to church. I gave. I, I did nice things to people. I served. And he said, depart from me. I never knew you because I didn't really believe. I just did things. See, when we trust, like if I were to turn around and to just do, you know, what we all know as the trust fall, like I start to, I'm not going to do it because I don't trust y'all. I don't trust, I don't trust y'all to get up here fast enough. Let's put it that way. And I didn't see my son or my daughter-in-law moving too quickly. Like if I actually might've done it, just see, see if he does it. See if he just hits his head on the ground. See, the truth of the matter is, if you really trust somebody, 
You can't decide halfway through that you don't anymore. I can't start the trust fall and then go, oh, well, not going to be there. Let me get back up. I don't know if I believe God or not. Now, when you fall into the arms of your Savior and you completely surrender to him, when you fall into him, then he will catch you. But you can't decide mid-fall that you don't believe it anymore. John 1 says that he came to his own. This is what the Bible says is a result of our belief in Christ. He came to his own. His own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, who, here's this word again, believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Those who believe, verse 12 says, the result of that belief, that saving faith in Christ, is a right to become a child of God, a right to be called a son or a daughter of the king. This was the purpose of Christ coming all along. It's still the purpose today and this is what we affirm. We believe when it comes to the Apostles' Creed that he came to make us his own. And historically it was meant to affirm that we had a personal faith in Christ. That we had a corporate faith together as the body, the church. But also that we would consistently affirm what we believe together. Why do we do that? Why do we consistently need to gather together as the body, as brothers and sisters in Christ, and say, this is what we believe? Why do we need to do that? I need to do that. You need to do that because we often battle with doubts. You can't tell me that you're not like me in a human way, which is that we go through life on a weekly basis having doubts and fears that we deal with. And so we gather together as the church, we gather together again and affirm what we believe as the body of Christ. We affirm this. And I think about this struggle that we go through a doubt. And, and I want you to understand, let me, I'm belaboring this point, is because doubt isn't something that, that is a sin per se. It's not something that, that you're never going to deal with. You will. But don't be condemned by it. Don't feel guilty by it. Allow Jesus to take your doubt, as we sang this morning, to crush it and turn it into faith and belief in him. When I was, and I've shared this a few times if you've been around here, I got saved when I was 10 years old at my home, after a devotion, after dinner. I gave my life to Christ as a 10-year-old to the best of my understanding of what I believed I was doing at that time. But then through the rest of my teenage years and middle school years and all of that and growing up, I can't tell you how many times I doubted my salvation and gave my life to Christ again. Over and over and over. Like, right? Has anybody ever been there? It's like, I'm not sure. You know, you're driving down the road and just doubt kicks in. It's like, man, if I were to die right now, I don't know. Okay, Jesus, I'm just going to make sure. Lord, you know, like if there was a pastor that saw me, they'd probably like, don't you come down to the altar and give your life to Jesus another time. (laughs) Trust that you've done it. Now, just allow him to sanctify your life. But it's like you doubt. You doubt your salvation. You doubt if God's listening. You doubt if God hears your prayers. You doubt all of these things. So what we do as the church is we gather together to be strengthened and we affirm what we believe about God and the Son and the Holy Spirit and the church and eternity. And that's what this does. So I want to close with this story from John chapter 20. So if you have your Bible, you can turn to John chapter 20. Because the opposite of doubt technically would be belief. The opposite of belief would be doubt. 
And so I want to talk about doubt for a minute, something we all struggle with. I want to talk about a disciple that was branded as a doubter. His name is Doubting what? Thomas. Doubting Thomas. Like even if you're a first time in church, you probably heard somebody say, oh, you're a Doubting Thomas. I don't know what that is, but hey, okay. Doubting Thomas. Listen, there are only 12 paltry verses about this guy in the whole Bible, and forever in history he is known as a doubter. Sounds a little unfair. Like, kind of get a bad rap there. But what I love about Thomas, his life, it shows us that he becomes something that even the biggest doubters can one day become, strong in their faith if they would just believe in Christ. By grace through faith, and this is something you work up, this is something that you get more than, it's just that you would believe, rely on, commit to, trust in. And I think this should be good to hear for all of us because doubt is something we all struggle with through our lifetimes, but God can turn our doubts into belief. Now Thomas, verse 24, one of the twelve, called the twins, some translations said, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, place my finger into the mark of the nails, place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands. and Put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other things in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, that by believing you may have life in his name. Now what's interesting is Thomas was not at this amazing first appearance of Jesus that the disciples are referring to. And it's actually in John chapter 20, verse 19. You back up a few verses, he appears to the disciples for the first time. And Thomas is not there. How do we know? Because John 20, 24 tells us so, like John is tattling on Thomas that he wasn't there. We read this. Now Thomas, one of the 12, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. Thomas wrote this. He's not present. Thomas? John, present, (laughs) never mind. (laughs) Thomas missed the empowering, commissioning service, if you will, that Jesus had a, a week prior. And all of a sudden, this was where Jesus sent them out. And the scripture says that he breathed on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Thomas missed it. And it's just another reason, if you will, not to miss gathering together in the presence of Jesus. And some of you know what I'm talking about. It's that one Sunday that you decide that it would just be better to sleep in and not go that day. That it's your friend calls and said, that was the best Sunday ever. Where were you on Easter? That was the best Easter ever. That was the best message Pastor Britt's ever preached on Easter. Somebody actually emailed me that this week. I was like, wow. So if you missed it, I'm sorry. No, you can watch it online or listen to the podcast if you like. I'm not saying that's true, but that's what this this individual felt, and I was super encouraged by it. Just another reason for us, if you will, that we would gather together to be encouraged and strengthened about what we believe. But for whatever reason, Thomas did not make this initial church service. 
And he missed seeing the resurrected Lord. He missed the presence of Jesus. He missed the power of Jesus. He missed the proof of Jesus. He missed the peace be with you moment that Jesus had with his disciples. The Holy Spirit breathing on them moment. Truly the reality is we can miss a lot when we're not in the places God wants us to be on a consistent basis. And I'm not building a theology of church attendance around this, but what I am saying is you can miss a lot when you forsake the gathering together the Scripture says some or want to do with the other disciples in the presence and the power of our Savior, affirming what we truly believe together. When we gather, we have our belief and our faith in Christ strengthened, and we all need it. Listen, I could do a sample test of the amount of times that we gather together consistently and the times that we don't and what's going on in our life, in our emotions, in our feelings. I can't tell you how many times, you know, Carla and I will be going, gone somewhere and it's just like even for a vacation, right? And just gone, it's like, I just feel so disconnected. It's like, it's one week. But the reality is, is we're meant to be together. We're meant to be affirming what we believe because we are weak and in Christ is only when we're strong. So therefore, it goes on to say, the other disciples said, hey, Thomas, we've seen the Lord. We saw him, really, really, and you missed it. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hand, unless I put my finger where the nails were, unless I put my hand into his side, I'm not going to believe. And there are three ways in the Greek, from what I understand, that you could say, I will not believe. And this is the strongest. He says, I want to believe, but unless I get to do all these things, then I can't believe. I can't just take your word for it. I have to experience the risen Christ for myself. Y'all want a dad joke for the second service? I didn't do this for the first service. This is just for y'all. Some believe Thomas was originally from the state of Missouri. The show me state. Okay, so. I'm sorry. Just had to do it. You see, the one of the big problems. If you believe that, we'll go back to the beginning of this message, right? Okay, we got problems. You'll believe anything. Sucker born every second. One of the big problems, at least I see in the American church, a lot of people just kind of believe because their parents believed or their uncle was a deacon or, or whatever, whatever we come up with. We just kind of believe because it seems like the moral thing to do. It'll be good for my, my resume or my job or my whatever I'm trying to be good with. Just kind of Christian, so we kind of believe. But what the Apostles' Creed affirms and, and other creeds is there is no such thing as a kind of believer. Like when it comes to Jesus, you're either all in or you're out because belief leads to action, something that I demonstrate. You can't sort of rely on, as I said a moment ago, you can't sort of trust in, you can't sort of commit to something when things get tough, and they will get tough in this life. See, when they get tough, you really trust or you're really committed or you really say, God, I trust you, right? You're not willing to kind of die for something that you only kind of believe in. And Jesus said, come and follow me. Take up your cross and die to yourself. You don't die for or two things unless you truly believe in it. So what do these apostles go out and affirm? 
What are they sent out to affirm? They are sent out to affirm what we already mentioned in John 3.16 and what we still affirm today. They claim that God loved the world so much that Jesus stepped out of heaven, left the confides of heaven as in the person of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He was born of a virgin, therefore he did not inherit the sin nature of a human being, but the divine nature of his heavenly Father. Therefore he could live without sin and as a perfect sacrifice, take our place on the cross. He could become sin for us, die and pay the penalty for our sin with his own blood make atonement for us but he claims that he didn't stay dead he claims and so do other eyewitnesses and the apostles that on the third day the stone was rolled away he came out of the tomb they claimed that Jesus had risen from the dead and that's what we still affirm just like last week just like today just like every day that we serve a risen savior that's the foundation of the Christian faith And if that is true, you see, then it demands a response. It demands a trust fall, if you will. Either you believe it and receive it, or you doubt it and you reject it. And to me, the only reasonable response, because God's grace opened up my eyes for a Savior who died for me, the only reasonable response is for me to actually live for him. And Thomas said, I want to know this is true. I really do, because if it's true, it changes everything. But i got to see it for myself. I want to believe, but I need a little help to believe. And that's exactly what Jesus did for Thomas. Jesus did not leave Thomas in a state of confusion. He graciously gave him what he needed to believe, and he can, and he has, and he will do the same for any of you. We'll read on, verse 26. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. And although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. John's really into where Thomas is, right? He says Thomas was with him this time. It was a week later. Their first encounter with Jesus, he wasn't there. Now Jesus comes through the wall. He says, peace be with you, because that's what you say when you walk through a wall. And he greets them with a kind, generous greeting. And it literally meant all peace in all ways and at all times be with you. Jesus gave Thomas the most benevolent greeting possible. Next verse, 27, then Jesus said to Thomas, now I want you to notice what Jesus did. He went to the one who was doubting. He went to the one who missed it the last time. And there's all the other disciples are still there, but he goes directly to Thomas and he says to him, put your fingers here. See, see my hands? Reach out, put them right there. Put your hand in my side. And then he says, stop doubting and believe. And I love this. Jesus gave Thomas exactly what he needed to believe. Notice what he didn't do. He didn't say, Thomas, go, go sit in the other room. Thomas, you're in timeout. Thomas, you have no faith. Where's your faith, Thomas? You need to strengthen yourself. Build your faith up. You're banned from being my disciple. No, he gave him exactly what he needed to believe. He met him in the middle of his doubts. He met him in the middle of his difficulty and his fears. And he said, stop doubting and believe. And I believe with all of my heart that God will do the same for you and for me. If he hasn't already, he may not give you exactly what your fill-in-the-blank request is, but he'll give you exactly what you need to see him exactly as he truly is. He may not give you the answer that you're asking for, but he will lead you into his presence where you will see that Jesus is the answer to everything that we're asking for. He graciously meets you right where you are in the middle of your doubts, and he allows you to discover the truth and turn your doubts into belief. Turn your doubts into determined faith. And he does so because of his great love for you. Jesus still meets us right where we are, no matter what that is, no matter what doubts you may have. And you could have doubts just like Thomas, like you don't believe that he is who he said he is. And Jesus will do the same thing that he did. Say, well, here, I want you to see, touch, see, feel. 
Taste and see that the Lord is good. And what you're going to see, hopefully in that moment, just like Thomas, that you'll say, my Lord, my God, I see it. It's you. As we said, the Apostles' Creed affirms what we truly believe, but true belief is supported by faith-filled actions, ways that we demonstrate our love. In the case of Thomas the doubter, he became a person of great faith. You see, once Thomas got what he needed, although he missed the first commissioning service, he didn't miss out on getting commissioned. Because although he got what he needed a week later, he went further than any other disciple had ever gone. History tells us that Thomas traveled all the way to India to be an evangelist there, to reach the people with the love of Christ that he had received from Christ himself. History tells us that a group of non-believers met him early in a cave one morning and said, renounce your faith, to which Thomas replied, I would never renounce my Lord and my God. And they drove a spear through his body as he died for the Savior that he was living for. Jesus, that Thomas doubted, was now the Jesus that Thomas was willing to die for. Thomas believed in Jesus enough to die for him. Thomas believed that it was demonstrated through his devoted, loving actions that he believed who Jesus said he was. And isn't this what Scripture says about Jesus and what he did for us? That while we were still sinners, he demonstrated his love for us. He didn't just say it. There was verifiable actions on the cross, verifiable actions in the resurrection, verifiable actions in the ascension, verifiable actions in the giving of the Holy Spirit. Do you believe in this Jesus enough now to live for him? Because stories like Thomas build our faith, but that's just one of thousands of stories about people who have been willing to live for Jesus, even willing to lay down their lives for Jesus. And more and more are being added to the Lamb's Book of Life, the faithful every single day. And what is going to take for us to have our faith strengthened to the place where doubt disappears and belief and faith rises in us to say, I will live not by just the words of my mouth, but by the demonstration of my actions. No matter how difficult it is, no matter who walks away from me, no matter who belittles me, no matter who marginalizes me, no matter what goes on in the world around me, I'm still going to demonstrate what God has done for me by living for him. What will it take to say I believe in God, the one true God, revealed through Jesus Christ, my Savior and Lord, and I will live with him with verifiable actions of love? What will it take to come to what John says is his desire for the church? It's in that last verse that we read from John 20, and this is what I'll close with. So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Abundant life, the scripture says, that's what we believe right now, today. And then eternal life with Christ in heaven forever, that's the hope of glory. We can affirm that today, that when you give your life to Christ, the Bible says that you have an abundant life now and an eternal life with him forever in heaven. That is the hope that we have in Christ. This is why we gather together. Because some of you have had some good weeks. Some of you have had some bad weeks. Some of you have had some wonderful times. Some of you have had some horrific and difficult times. So we gather together today like we do every single Sunday, and we affirm that God is trustworthy, that we rely on him, that we trust in him, and that 
that we are committed to him. I was thinking this when we were in worship a minute ago. There's a lot of sports going on right now. I'm a huge sports fan. Like this afternoon, I'll be, I'll be in sports heaven, watching the Masters, watching Hawks basketball, watching Braves baseball tonight, and then anything in between that I can find on the TV, I'll watch. And I love sports and I love my teams. You can tell my wife, it, it literally affects my moods sometimes. Not a good thing, I'm confessing. But why is it, why is it that we're more loyal to our sports teams than we are to the church? Like I've been loyal to my sports team even when they lost more than half their games. But the church goes through a little bumpy road. Man, it's not like it was when it was exciting and victorious. I'm out. I've been loyal to my teams when I didn't like the manager, didn't like some of the players. We don't like somebody or have an issue with somebody. I'm like, you know what? I'm out. Why is it that we're more loyal to a team because of the state we were born into than we are to Jesus' church because we're born again in his name? I don't want that to be us. I don't want that to be you. So that's why we gather together to affirm what we believe so that we can persevere to the end and receive the prize that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. You have been listening to the In Focus Church podcast. We hope God met you right where you're at today. Be sure to like, subscribe, and leave a rating wherever you're listening from and visit infocuschurch.org for more on all that's going on in the life of our church.